This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. During the mid-1990s, a man named Phil Schneider gave lectures around the country about alien life visiting Earth. He claimed that aliens worked side-by-side with the U.S. government in advancing American technology. According to Schneider, when an alien flying saucer crashes onto American soil, the U.S. government disassembles it in order to find out how it works. They use their findings to create new technology for the U.S. military in a process known as reverse engineering. How did Schneider know this? Because as a U.S. government engineer, he allegedly worked in the underground government base where this was done. He's not alone in this claim. Many former verified and unverified government employees insist that the U.S. government is reverse engineering alien technology technologies such as the UFO that infamously crashed down in Roswell, New Mexico. Allegedly, Schneider knew many other whistleblowers who mysteriously committed suicide. He believed that, in actuality, they were killed by the U.S. government for revealing the truth about alien life. Schneider thought the same fate awaited him. In his lectures, he would detail 13 attempts on his life, where he was driven off the road or even shot at. According to Schneider, the government was trying to silence him once and for all. And on January 17, 1996, 
Schneider was found dead in his home, strangled with a catheter tied around his neck. His death was ruled as a suicide. However, when his body was found, all of his documents on alien life were missing. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked how you can help support the show, and if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. Today, we're looking into reverse engineering, the conspiracy theory about the U.S. government developing bits and pieces of technology from crashed UFOs. They figure out how the alien tech works and then feed said technology into American industry. This process has supposedly been happening since the first major UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Night vision, microchips, and even Kevlar vests are all said to be reverse-engineered from alien technology. And conspiracy theorists believe the government is hiding even more reverse-engineered inventions. Like free, renewable energy that could solve global warming, which the U.S. is hiding in order to protect our investment in the fossil fuel industry. Or the TR-3 Black Manta. These black triangular U.S. aircrafts have been spotted all over the country. However, there is no official record of them belonging to any organization. Could the U.S. be hiding their existence because of its extraterrestrial origins? And the most sinister aspect of this conspiracy theory? The U.S. is getting superior technology directly from the aliens themselves in exchange for human test subjects. In this episode, part one, we will focus on confirmed instances of U.S. reverse engineering, when the U.S. government studied and adapted technologies from other countries on Earth. We'll also look at the official story of the UFO that crashed down in Roswell, New Mexico. Next week, we'll dive into the conspiracy theories we mentioned earlier and try to figure out where the technological leaps of the last century actually came from. Let's start with a definition of reverse engineering, straight from the U.S. Army Department of Defense's Reverse Engineering Handbook, Guidelines and Procedures. It is, quote, the process of duplicating an item, functionally and dimensionally, by physically examining and measuring existing parts to develop technical data, physical and material characteristics required for competitive procurement, end quote. So taking things apart, figuring out how they work, and then recreating them ourselves. I doubt that U.S. Army handbook mentions anything about alien technology. It doesn't, but it goes to show that reverse engineering is not a secret or unusual practice. It's common in most countries' militaries. But it didn't become a main focus of America's military until a new type of warfare left us completely 
unprepared. Before the First World War, dueling sides had no choice but to go head-to-head on land or water. However, World War I changed the game by bringing it to the skies. For the first time in history, air warfare was a major factor in battle, one that each side had to learn to defend themselves against. The first of these fighter planes were used by the French military. In 1914, esteemed military pilot Roland Garros helped develop and test a machine gun that fired through a plane's propeller. Surprisingly, only about one in ten bullets would hit the propeller blades, and the rest would go right for their target. Garros later employed this machine gun in battle, downing five enemy German planes. Surprise aerial attacks became a leading contributor to the war's overall death toll. It was obvious that those who controlled the skies now controlled the battle. This became a revolutionary weapon, one that other countries wanted their hands on. Of course, the French weren't exactly willing to share their military technology. But soon after introducing it to the battlefield, Garros's plane was shot down by a German bullet. He attempted to set the plane on fire and escape, but he and his plane were quickly captured. German technicians were quick to reverse engineer Garros's machine gun. In doing so, They created a more synchronized gun that fired through the propeller arc and improved accuracy. Which is an important part of the reverse engineering process. Not only do you copy what's been done, but you also improve on it. The German iteration of Garrus's gun became a force to be reckoned with. It shot down over 1,000 Allied planes. However, the Germans soon found this improved technology in their enemy's hands as well. Like we said before, Reverse engineering is a common practice of militaries worldwide. Especially in wartime, countries will copy what's used against them so they aren't outmatched. But there was one major country that wasn't involved in this new air warfare and technological one-upping, the United States of America. The U.S. was late to enter World War I, and when the country finally did on April 6, 1917, the U.S. didn't even own a single fighter plane. It was obvious how the U.S., once the greatest industrial nation, was truly unprepared for this new era of war. Three months later, President Wilson signed three bills to fund the new American Air Force. To stay ahead, the Air Force established an aviation engineering center in Dayton, Ohio. This became the technical data section, where the Air Force studied domestic and foreign aircraft. Their mission was to make sure that America never falls behind in technology again. It was known as the Foreign Data Section of the Airplane Engineering Department. Its main responsibility? The, quote, technical exploitation of enemy technology, end quote. Army troops would capture foreign or enemy equipment and send it back to Wright Field to analyze how it worked. They would then distribute their findings to U.S. businesses and the military. Dayton, Ohio quickly became a central hub for studying and reverse engineering foreign aircraft and technology. By the end of World War I, the technical data section not only obtained German, Italian, French, and British planes, but also aerial cannons and machine guns. The department wasn't only reverse engineering the planes themselves, but also their weapons. The U.S. government didn't want to just copy technology. They wanted to improve it. 
Like the Germans did with a French plane-mounted machine gun, the U.S. wanted to enhance foreign weaponry to ensure victory. And there's no better example of this than the German V-1 buzz bombs of World War II. On June 6, 1944, American, British, and Canadian forces invaded German-occupied Normandy. These Allied forces stormed the coastline with 156,000 troops. Adolf Hitler thought that the invasion was meant to distract German forces from another, much bigger attack somewhere else, so he hesitated to bring reinforcements to combat the Allies. This led to Normandy being fully secured by Allied forces within a week. They continued to fight their way through Normandy, liberating the French region from German control. The Normandy invasion has been called the beginning to the end of the war in Europe. However, during that week where Allied forces were securing the coast, Hitler had one more surprise. The Kirschgen, or Cherry Pit, was a ballistic missile that was merely to be spit out at England. It was also known as the V-1, or buzz bomb, named after the shrill buzz it made while it was being dropped on London. Once this sound was identified as a falling V-1, Londoners were in constant fear that they would hear its ominous buzzing and then a terrible explosion nearby. Winston Churchill wrote that this left Londoners with, quote, a burden perhaps even heavier than the air raids of 1940 and 1941, end quote. Those particular air raids, known as the Blitz, killed 43,000 British civilians. The buzz bomb became a traumatic reminder of those times, which they'd hoped weren't happening again. The buzz bomb was unfortunately a very powerful feat in not only weaponry, but intimidation and fear. One that America wanted their hands on. When damaged components of buzz bombs were recovered from crash sites, they were brought to Wright Field in Ohio. The plan was to reverse engineer them and launch them in less than five months. The U.S. wanted their own high-powered bombs and wanted them fast. And they got their wish. It took American Air Force and Wright Field engineers three weeks to completely reverse engineer the bombs and make them stronger. While the buzz bomb made its name in destruction, it wasn't the most accurate weapon. About half of them would land within eight miles of their intended target. The American version, the JB-2, also known as the Loon, had improved accuracy at both a 100 and 150 mile range. The plan was to use these missiles against Japan. Production was ramped up to orders of 2,000. JB-2 launchers were to be mounted on both B-17G and B-29 bombers. U.S. military forces prepared for an all-scale attack. But then... Japan surrendered. The JB-2 launchers weren't needed after all. After about 1,000 were made, production was put to a halt. But even if the U.S. military didn't get to use these weapons, it still paved the way for other advances. The U.S. military learned invaluable knowledge about surface-to-surface missile systems and accuracy. It also had a proven ability to reverse-engineer foreign technology. Which is important considering that three years later, something crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. Some believe that it was an alien UFO, and this infamous event was the beginning of the U.S. reverse engineering alien technology. If U.S. engineers were able to do it three years earlier with the buzz bomb, 
why wouldn't they do it with an alien ship? Of course, officially, it wasn't an alien flying saucer that crashed at Roswell. But, ironically, it begins with an admission of real-life flying saucers and what looks like an immediate cover-up. We'll be back in a few minutes with a deeper look at reverse engineering and the Roswell incident. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. On June 24, 1947, a pilot named Kenneth Arnold flew near Mount Rainier, Washington. He was searching for a crashed plane that was thought to be in the area, hoping to cash in on a $5,000 reward for whoever could find its location. But what he found was much more mysterious. A bright flash blinded him through his windshield. When he was able to get a better look, he realized that it was the sun reflecting off a peculiar sight. Nine glowing crescent-shaped aircraft flying in a V formation. He estimated that they were traveling at 1,200 miles per hour, a speed well above what it takes to break the sound barrier. Something that, at the time, was thought to be impossible. Arnold described the craft as flying like, quote, a saucer would if you skipped it across water, end quote. The press latched onto that description and flying saucers became the hot news story of the week. Soon, reports of flying saucers and UFOs were sweeping newsstands everywhere. According to the Smithsonian, the last six months of 1947 alone had over 300 reported sightings. It was these headlines that made a ranch foreman named Mac Brazel question some debris he found on the Foster Ranch just outside of Roswell, New Mexico in the summer of 1947. The debris was made of paper, rubber, and tinfoil, which doesn't sound like anything extraterrestrial. Well, nevertheless, Brazel thought that it might be a flying saucer and notified the county sheriff. Roswell Sheriff George Wilcox inspected the debris and didn't really know what to make of it. He couldn't say it wasn't a UFO. He notified the Roswell Army Airfield, thinking they might be able to identify it. However, they weren't quite sure what this bundle of tinfoil was either. That was until Army Air Corps Lieutenant Walter Hout was directed to write a press release. He recalls, Very simply stated, 
that we had in our possession a flying saucer and that it was being flown to Fort Worth to General Ramey's office, General Ramey being the next higher command. And I did that. Uh, I don't remember the exact verbiage that I used. Here's the verbiage issued on July 8, 1947. Quote, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc, end quote. The U.S. had a flying saucer. This goes against what you think would happen if the government obtained an alien UFO. Instead of keeping it a secret, they told everybody. It's strange, I'll give you that, but not when you consider the political climate at the time. This was during the beginning of the Cold War. The U.S. and the Soviet Union were in a constant competition on who had the most powerful weapons and advanced technology. Each side made technological military advancements to secure their safety if the other attacked and started World War III. Since nuclear weapons were now in play after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Americans were paranoid about what kind of weapon the Soviet Union would come up with to counter that. Also, UFO and flying saucer weren't always synonymous with aliens. It's possible that the Roswell Army Airfield thought they were alerting the media that a Soviet Union aircraft landed on American soil, not an alien one. However, whatever it was that they thought they had was disputed the very next day by the head of the Air Force, General Roger M. Ramey. The pictures of Ramey inspecting the debris showed that it was about three feet long with large rips in its foil. The remaining intact pieces were held together by balsa wood. This groundbreaking flying saucer looked more like a child's fallen kite. It is a bit underwhelming. Other reports note that the supposed crash site didn't have the kind of wreckage you would expect from a fallen aircraft. There wasn't any machinery, such as propellers, wires, or engine pieces. There was basically just more rubber, tin foil, and scotch tape. After they completed their inspection, Ramey and the Air Force issued a new press release. It stated that the alleged spacecraft was nothing more than a weather balloon. However, weather balloons had crashed onto the Foster Ranch before. Mac Brazel has gone on record saying that the debris in question didn't look like one. Well, this one was a little bit different. Attached to it was a radar target, a kite-like device made of tinfoil and balsa wood. But balsa wood isn't alien technology. Anyone could get it at their local craft store. The case of the Roswell UFO was closed. It was officially a weather balloon. Newspapers printed the new official story, and the Roswell incident left headlines almost as quickly as it dominated them. Practically within 24 hours, the general public went from believing that a flying saucer crashed in Roswell to accepting the weather balloon story and moving on. Today, it's the ground zero of alien conspiracy theories. But it's true that in 1947, it was just another news story that came and went. A news story that initially started with the U.S. government being surprisingly honest. Well, when it came to obtaining foreign aircraft, the U.S. wasn't always that secretive, especially when we wanted to reverse engineer them. In fact, the government has actually been pretty openly willing to pay big bucks for aircraft technology. 
A few years after Roswell, during the Korean War, the communist MiG-15 shocked the West. It was one of the fastest jets to ever enter battle. They were able to open fire from almost 2,000 feet away. They had a notorious reputation for destruction. To quote former U.S. pilot Earl McGill, On my first mission, we were briefed for heavy MiG interception. I was so scared on that day that I've never been frightened since. End quote. And on a day known as Black Tuesday, in October 1951, nearly 200 MiGs dove in from above, surprising nine of our B-29 bombers. Whereas B-29s were built to carry bombs, the MiGs were built for agility. They left only one B-29 unscathed. Five were damaged and three were utterly destroyed. Once again, America was unprepared in another battle to remain on top. And we might have been a little desperate to climb back up. The U.S. Far East Command offered a $100,000 reward to anyone that could provide them with a fully functional MiG-15 so they could study it. Nowadays, that reward would be almost $1 million. At this time, a young North Korean MiG-15 pilot, Lieutenant No, wanted to leave North Korea and move to the U.S. In his public military life, Lieutenant No seemed to be a loyal communist who often criticized his peers for not hating the U.S. enough. He even started a pro-communist newspaper. But this was all a lie to stay ahead in the military. In reality, Lieutenant No hated communism and romanticized the U.S. It was his dream to live in the free world. He would even stay behind on aerial dogfights between U.S. airplanes, not wanting to shoot down a U.S. pilot. One day, Lieutenant No was flying in formation with other MiG-15s and decided to take a risk. He'll be happy in a free land, he told himself. He broke free from his other MiG pilots and headed to a U.S. military base outside of Seoul. On the runway, a U.S. F-86 pilot was landing in the opposite direction of Lieutenant No. The sight of a MiG-15 landing on American territory scared the pilot half to death. Lieutenant No stepped out of his cockpit, held up a picture of North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Il-sung, and ripped it to shreds. Lieutenant No reportedly didn't even know about the $100,000 reward, or that along with it came political asylum. By bringing the U.S. the infamous fighter jet, Lieutenant No fulfilled his dream and was granted U.S. citizenship. And the U.S. officially had their first fully functional MiG-15. It was brought to Wright Field for test flights and reverse engineering. Lieutenant No helped U.S. pilots, such as the famed Chuck Yeager, learn how to fly the long-feared fighter jet. Through test flights and through taking it apart and examining it over and over again, the United States Air Force were able to fully reverse engineer it. Which actually proved that the technical assessment and analysis they already had on it was already 98% correct. Well, this showed that the U.S. had the capabilities for complex reverse engineering in the 1950s, even without full access to the original. It also revealed where the MiG-15 exceeded U.S. jets, as well as its downsides. The MiG-15 had a tendency to spin out and its controls were ineffective during dives or tight turns. The Air Force was able to take what they learned about the MiG-15 and greatly improve U.S. aircraft, equipment, and engagement tactics. The government even offered to return it to its rightful owners to prevent any bad blood between the U.S. and North Korea. However, 
no country claimed it. In his autobiography, Lieutenant No thinks this is because if North Korea took it back, they would have to admit that one of their pilots abandoned their country. So not only did the U.S. government offer a big cash reward for the plane, they were willing to give it back. Having a MiG-15 wasn't really that big of a secret. The more you look at other instances of the U.S. obtaining foreign aircraft, the more open and honest the government seems to be. Like we said, they were even pretty honest about thinking they had a flying saucer in Roswell. Well, that's true. But they didn't stay completely honest. In 1994, we found out that the government was indeed hiding something about Roswell. We'll examine the latest Roswell developments after this quick break. And now back to the story. New Mexico Congressman Stephen Schiff often received questions and eyewitness testimonies from his constituents about the Roswell incident. By 1994, the supposed accounts of what happened went far and beyond the weather balloon story. Some of these accounts revealed a disturbing tale of government threats. Remember Mac Brazel, the man who originally found the Roswell UFO? His son claims that Roswell officials held his father for nearly a week. He was unable to contact anyone and was ordered not to say anything about his experience. But he did manage to tell a newspaper that whatever he found, quote, did not in any way resemble a weather balloon, end quote. And then there's the family of Sheriff Wilcox, the county sheriff Brazel originally reported the debris to. They claimed that the whole family received death threats from the military, warning them against ever discussing the incident. They also said that not only did the sheriff see the debris, but he also saw four space beings at the crash site, one of them alive. Well, civilian Air Force employee Frank Kaufman later described them. These were actually good-looking people. I mean, the, uh, I'd say they were probably maybe 5'3", five, 5'4", five, in height in that range. Uh, eyes were a little bit larger than ours, not too much. Small ears, small nose. And the ones that weren't? Well, some accounts claim that the bodies of child-sized human-like beings were also found. One army nurse claims to have participated in the autopsies. Clearly, there were people who believed that something much bigger than a weather balloon crashed onto the Foster Ranch. These reports cast enough doubt on the official story that Schiff started asking questions. When he requested more information about Roswell from the Department of Defense, he received an astounding lack of response, according to a 1994 Washington Post article. Schiff was told to look into the National Archives, a move that he took as an insult. The Pentagon usually responds to a Congress member's request for information with no problem. Exactly. He wasn't some amateur ufologist hounding the government for the truth. He was a congressman asking for more information about what happened in his state. Why was the government being so resistant? It turned out that the National Archives had no relevant information for Schiff. He was a UFO skeptic, but the runaround he was getting led him to believe the government was hiding something. Schiff asked the General Accounting Office, the investigation arm of Congress, for help. Once they got involved, the Air Force suddenly had an explanation, and their official report revealed an interesting chain of custody. The report transcribes a sworn testimony by Colonel Albert Trukowski. 
In it, he recalls a phone call he had with his colleague, Colonel Marcellus Duffy, back in 1947. Duffy claimed to have the Roswell UFO. Drakowski was the head of a secret government program named Project Mogul. Duffy was his predecessor who was reassigned to Wright Field. During the Cold War, Project Mogul's purpose was to detect whether or not the Soviets were testing nuclear bombs. One of their detection devices was a balloon strapped with sensors that, when floating at a certain atmospheric level, could detect sound waves from a nuclear blast all the way in the Soviet Union. These balloons did not look like a typical weather balloon. Attached to them were a series of microphones and a disc-shaped antenna. Roswell witnesses also claimed that the craft had aluminum rings, a black box, and reflectors with alien hieroglyphics. All of which resemble a Project Mogul balloon, the black box being its battery box, and the hieroglyphics being a floral pattern printed onto the reflectors. In 1947, several Mogul balloons were released in a testing flight at Alamogordo, New Mexico. According to the Air Force's report, one of these balloons crashed down in Roswell. Being that Project Mogul was classified until 1972, it's possible that Roswell Air Force wouldn't even recognize a Mogul balloon when Mac Brazel showed them one. This would explain why they thought it was a foreign UFO and sent it to Colonel Duffy at Wright Field, the Center of Foreign Analysis and Reverse Engineering. According to the Air Force's report, Duffy told Trakowski, the head of Project Mogul, that the balloon, quote, sure looks like some of the stuff you've been launching at Alamogordo, end quote. After he described it, Trakowski confirmed that it did indeed sound like a Project Mogul balloon. And according to the Air Force's report, all signs pointed to that conclusion as well. Being that Project Mogul was a classified operation in 1947, those who knew it was a Mogul balloon, like Colonel Duffy did, needed to keep it a secret. However, Wright Field and the Air Force also needed to relieve any public fear about flying saucers in New Mexico, alien or Soviet Union. A weather balloon was the simplest explanation that they could give, and so it became the official story for nearly 50 years. With this newly revealed information, the General Accounting Office accepted Project Mogul as a new official story of Roswell. Here's director of the International UFO Museum and Research Center, Dion Crosby. Whether it was an, a, a ship from another world or a very secret ship that someone here in our own um, military was working on, it was serious enough, so serious enough, that um, things needed to be kept quiet and under control. And the military did that and did it in a very orchestrated manner. The U.S. government was able to confirm Project Mogul's existence and stated that they do not believe that the Air Force was covering up a UFO. And if there was no UFO, well, then there was no alien technology to reverse engineer. This new official story seems pretty airtight. What fell down at Roswell was not an alien UFO or a weather balloon. For once, there was enough evidence to prove it. But, according to one source close to the investigation, they do believe that something big happened at Roswell, something that the Air Force still wanted to cover up. This is because not everything in their official report seemed to make sense. The report mentions a Roswell Army airfield message to the FBI, notifying them that the Roswell saucer was sent to Wright Field. 
the FBI didn't conduct any further investigation. That message described the UFO as a, quote, high-altitude weather balloon with a radar reflector, end quote. It's possible that the FBI just knew it was a Project Mogul balloon and had no need to investigate. Yes, that is possible, but unfortunately we may never know. According to the report, many Roswell Army airfield documents and messages from 1947 were destroyed. It's not known what these documents contained or which organization ordered their destruction. We don't even know when they were destroyed. For all we know, it could have been right as the General Accounting Office started asking questions. But we still have the message that says the UFO was just a weather balloon. And suggested that the FBI didn't feel the need to investigate it. Funny how that one managed to survive. According to former CIA intelligence officer Carl T. Flock, an earlier draft of the report stated that the deleted documents were classified as permanent records. I.e., they should never have been destroyed in the first place. So why were they? Could the Air Force still be hiding something? Maybe a plane that crashed with a nuclear device. Some other kind of experimental military weapon? Maybe they were still hiding alien life. Well, according to the official story, this was just an oversight. The General Accounting Office's report says that mysteriously destroyed documents are not uncommon. There were documents missing from previous and future years as well. Either way, all signs point to the official story of Roswell being Project Mogul. And thus the truth about Roswell was no longer a secret. While Schiff never seemed to believe the alien conspiracy theories, he knew that the weather balloon story didn't add up. He and the people of Roswell now had their answer. It just took a few decades for the government to tell the truth. That concludes the official story of Roswell, New Mexico, and the history of reverse engineering in the U.S. Next week, we'll discuss three conspiracy theories about the U.S. reverse engineering alien technology. We'll go over what we've supposedly done with the reverse engineered alien tech, how we got it, and what we're hiding. Conspiracy theory number one. We've mostly referred to reverse engineering in terms of the military. However, what if we reverse engineered alien tech for something other than war? Something like free worldwide renewable energy. Some theorists believe that we already have reverse engineered this, and this free energy could possibly solve global warming. But of course, it's been covered up by the fossil fuel industry. Conspiracy theory number two, in more recent decades, black triangular-shaped aircraft have been spotted all over the U.S. The thing is, there is no official record of them belonging to any organization. Could these be aircraft that the U.S. reverse-engineered from similar alien ships? How would we have gotten those alien ships? Did they crash onto U.S. soil like the Roswell balloon? Or were we given them by aliens themselves? but with a price. That brings us to conspiracy theory number three. Aliens are actually giving us advanced technology in exchange for human test subjects. According to the theory, President Dwight Eisenhower made a deal with an alien race known as Greys. They were allowed to abduct and perform tests on a certain number of U.S. citizens as long as they gave us advanced technology in return. While it may have given Eisenhower the first-ever Wi-Fi network, according to some people, this treaty is still ruining lives today. 
but that's only if the theory is true. We'll be back next week to examine the conspiracy theories about reverse engineering alien technology and search for the truth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admar and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Brandon Rizzuto and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 